Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and what a start to the week, right? We're here at the west front of the U.S. Capitol, where in just a few hours we'll witness the ceremonial swearing-in of President Barack Obama for the 57th. Well, it's like the running of the bulls here on the National Mall is... America's possibilities are limitless, for we possess all the qualities that this world without boundaries demands. We were in the car from 11 o'clock last night until 6 o'clock this morning, and it was certainly worth every mile. My fellow Americans, we are made for this moment, and we will seize it so long as we seize it together. I've had a lot of fun in the... Um, and I forgot how to say it. Inauguration. (laughs) Later, people will go back to talking about debt ceilings and sequesters, but tonight at least, it was all about having a good time. At the convention center, I'm Sabri Beneshore. Now that the inaugural frenzy is over, high-stakes political battles are ramping up on Capitol Hill. So this week, our show is all about taking chances. We'll check out the debate over gun control and consider how it may play out in Maryland and Virginia. And so we think that these are common sense measures that will, at at a minimum, trigger someone whether they should be uh, denied a gun. We'll learn why people on the Maryland coast are turning to a risky drug. 20% of the people who are walking in the door right now are choosing opiates as one of their drugs of choice. And we'll hear about a scientific gamble as researchers work to treat spinal cord injuries. We're actually putting in cells that are going to turn into neurons that are going to actually bridge the gap. So we're creating new circuitry. So since we're calling this week's show Taking Chances, why don't we head to a place that is quite literally all about chance? It's not a casino. It's not a racetrack. No, it's actually a tiny town. All right, so we just passed the sign for Chance, Maryland, on Maryland's eastern shore, right next to Deal Island, and on Chance's main drag. Ah, here it is. You'll find this bright yellow building. Lucky's Last Chance general store. That's become an anchor for the community of 300-some people. I'll see you later. Yeah, take care, Jerry. Jerry Foster has been working at Lucky's Last Chance General Store about six months now. And uh, I'm not far from here. It's only about three miles away, so it's real close. That's convenient. And you get to know everybody in the community. That's nice, too. In addition to working the register at Lucky's, Jerry and her co-worker Michelle Burr also cook up a storm for the restaurant in back. The Paradise Grill. This is a chicken cheesesteak. We just added that to the menu. It's our newest thing. (laughs) What do you think people order the most out of everything? Cheesesteaks. Really? Yeah. More so than oysters? Well, no, we get a... During oyster season, everybody loves the Rockefellers, the single fry. Given that I'm here in the heart of oyster season, I'm treated to a big old plate of both the fried oysters and the half shells, smothered in spinach, cheese, and crispy bacon. All right, and these are for you. Gosh, those look delicious. They are delicious. <laughs> and Jerry's not the only one who thinks so. Mmm. Isn't it like a complete meal? <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Palau owns Lucky's Last Chance. The Virginia native lived in Boston for a while before moving to Chance and opening Lucky's about a decade ago. But her family actually has deep roots in the Eastern Shore. 
My father's family actually was from Taylor's Island, just one sort of peninsula area up, and they were Methodist shipbuilders. And, like, if you go to Taylor's Island, there are people in the grave with the last name Lambden, which was my maiden name. I actually saw myself there. There was a Margaret E. Lambden <laughs> buried at a Methodist church in Taylor's Island. <laughs> Speaking of shipbuilders, during my visit to Lucky's Last Chance, a former ship captain... Here's one of our favorite customers. Hang on. Mr. Wesley! Stops by. Wesley Price is 86, retired from the Navy. Before that, he captained a skipjack. That's one of those oyster dredging boats you see on the Chesapeake Bay. Mr. Wesley Price is one of our founding fathers. That's what I call him. (laughs) For the past however many years, Mr. Wesley has visited Lucky's Last Chance two or three times a day for a very special treat. So you come here to get ice cream? Mm -hmm. More specifically, a vanilla bar on a stick. Vanilla ice cream with chocolate on top? That's right. Is that the only kind you ever order? At all. Unless I have the audacity to run out, and then he has to eat a fudge (laughs) (laughs) But not happily, I might add. (laughs) Another longtime customer, Jim Rahack, frequently visits Lucky's. What makes you keep coming back to Lucky's? For a treat of his own. Because I love buying lottery tickets at Lucky's. What better place? (laughs) (laughs) Now, the food's good. It's a nice place. Margaret's good people. We just enjoy being here and talking to her. It is a community gathering place. We see some of the same customers about four or five times a day. And you can divide those customers, Margaret says, into three categories. Born here's. So natives, like Mr. Wesley. Brung here's. They're the poor little wives that got dragged off the mainland. (laughs) And then come here's. People who retire here. So so does everyone get along, the born here's, the brung here's, and the come here's? Um, No, not really. But the conflicts usually arise between... Born here's and born here's. <laughs> and then there's the born here's that don't like the come here's. And then there's people that get along with everybody. And it's just like any community. Yeah. There's a mix. And on any given day, you'll find this mix at Lucky's Last Chance General Store in Chance, Maryland. Perhaps they're admiring the driftwood mobiles and animals created by Margaret and her husband. Like he did some dolphins and some sharks and some sturgeons. And the birds. The birds are amazing. The pelicans are his newest thing. The frog and the pelican. Or maybe they're taping another news clipping to the wall of fame. Anybody who becomes a high school hockey star or soccer star or Miss Skipjack and you know, anything that happens goes up there. Or it could be they're just walking in, ordering a single fry and talking their troubles away. We do a lot of therapy. Unofficial free therapy. Right. (laughs) Whatever the case, here in this bright yellow building on the eastern shore's western shore, Margaret Palau is happy to give them that chance. To see photographs of Lucky's Last Chance in Chance, Maryland, including those driftwood animals and mobiles and the Wall of Fame, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to stay on the eastern shore a little bit longer for On the Coast. Our regular segment in which coastal reporter Brian Russo brings us the latest news from, you guessed it, the coast. And today, as we explore stories about taking chances, we'll take a look at a troubling trend in Ocean City and surrounding communities. A spike in the use of heroin. 
And Brian joins us now from Ocean City. Hi there, Brian. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? Good, good. So so I remember a few weeks ago you reported on, on a big heroin bust out in Ocean City, right? Yeah, that bust was back in early December when 26 people were arrested for allegedly taking part in a heroin distribution ring. And those arrests are really what put a spotlight on this heroin problem in the region. I talked with then police chief Bernadette DePino, who said it was part of a six week long undercover investigation. We were able to seize three vehicles, 110 bags of heroin, five bags of cocaine, five replica handguns, and about $656 in cash. And uh, the investigation is going to continue on. And from what I understand, that investigation is still continuing on as, as heroin use goes up on the coast. Yeah, when you talk to addiction counselors, they're definitely still seeing some people come through their doors every day with heroin addictions. Catrice Langford Purnell is an addictions counselor at the Worcester County Health Department. She told me cocaine used to be the biggest problem. And more recently, other opiates like prescription pills took the lead. But now... I would say within the last two years, that opiate population has actually turned to a heroin population. And that's a big change from, say, a decade ago. Doris Moxley is the director of the county's addictions program. She says 10 years ago, only 2 to 3% of the clients they saw were dealing with an addiction to heroin or other opiates. We recently looked at what percentage of our clients are using opiates, and that's about 20% of the people who are walking in the door right now um, are choosing opiates as one of their drugs of choice. Wow, 2% versus 20 That's a huge change. Why such a dramatic increase? Well, I asked Chief DePino about that, and she said part of it has to do with the police department's crackdown on prescription drug abuse. It's a lot harder for people to get prescription drugs now. So in response, they've turned to heroin, which the counselors tell me is easier to find and it's actually cheaper. But another part of the explanation has to do with what's happening thousands of miles away in the Mexican and South American drug trade. We're seeing a significant impact and attack on cocaine in our southern regions in Mexico and South America. The governments in those countries are cooperating with the United States, working with the DEA and our federal government. And with those attacks on the cartels, it's restricting a lot of the cocaine that's being able to be imported. And that causes the price to also go up. So really what you're seeing is that when law enforcement cracks down in one area, the demand turns to some other drug in this case, heroin. And that's not lost on Bernadette DePino. She says she'd really rather see people getting treatment for their addictions than just being put behind bars. Okay, you mentioned treatment. I want to talk more about that. Are there enough resources where you are to meet the demand for such treatment? They tell me it's definitely a challenge. Part of the problem is that Worcester County, the county that includes Ocean City, of course, has a population that grows from 50,000 people in the winter to somewhere around 400,000 people during the summer months. So they always see a huge spike in demand amongst people who are here for the tourist season. And then there's the particular challenge of heroin addiction. Doris Moxley from the Worcester County Health Department says some of the treatment options for that specific drug are in short supply here on the coast. We do know that there are several medications that can assist people in treatment. There is one method, which is to go cold turkey and drug-free, but also methadone is another. Buprenorphine is a, a relatively new treatment method. The problem with buprenorphine actually is that we don't have enough physicians in our community who are prescribing and treating people with buprenorphine. Addiction counselors say they'd really like to see more local doctors offering buprenorphine as an option for people trying to kick their addictions. But in the meantime, they mostly just want to get out the message that help is available for those ready to seek it. 
Pam Hay, who's a clinical supervisor in the Worcester Health Department's addiction program, says people need to realize just how strong and dangerous this drug is. The grab that it takes on your neurotransmitters is so awesomely powerful that people underestimate it. And given that it is, as she says, so awesomely powerful in terms of its addictive potential, I think we're going to see more police arrests and more demand for treatment here on the coast in the months to come and maybe even in the years to come. Well, we certainly appreciate your reporting on this really challenging topic. Thanks so much, Brian. Anytime, Rebecca. Brian Russo is WAMU's coastal reporter and the host of Coastal Connection on 88.3 in Ocean City, Maryland. You can find links to more of Brian's reports on this topic on our website, metroconnection.org. And next week, Brian will bring us another aspect of this story as he introduces us to a man who kicked his heroin addiction and is now working to help other people. So stay tuned. Time for a break, but when we get back, taking chances and seeking a breakthrough for people with spinal cord injuries. It will be rewarding when we've cured people. There's no moral victories here. You can either help the patients or you can't. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week's theme is taking chances. And in just a bit, we'll hear from local scientists who are taking big chances in the field of stem cell research. We'll also meet authors taking literary risks in our monthly series, Bookend. First, though, we'll explore an issue lawmakers are debating hotly right now, including lawmakers in Maryland and Virginia. See, if you talk with people on either side of this debate, each one thinks the other is taking huge chances when it comes to safety. Gun control has really come to the fore over the past six months after the deadly shootings in Colorado, Wisconsin, and just last month in Connecticut at Sandy Hook Elementary School. I'll bet my reaction was the same as everybody else who heard it. They thought of little kids in school that they knew, and they thought, oh my God, what would I do if that happened to them? Republican Bob Marshall represents parts of Prince William and Loudoun counties in the Virginia House of Delegates. How long have you been a state delegate? Too long for my opponents. In other words, 22 years. 1991, I was elected. Marshall is proposing legislation that he says would prevent Virginia families from experiencing the same sorrow as Connecticut families have. It would require at least one person in every Virginia public school to be trained and certified to carry a gun. You would be having to go through the same requirements that the Department of Criminal Justice Services establishes for a state police officer. So you'd have to know how to store a gun. How to safely and prudently use it. And how to respond when police come to the scene. You don't want to be out in the hall holding a gun when the the regular professional police 
have arrived. After the Sandy Hook shooting, an Ohio-based gun group launched its own firearm training program for teachers. The Buckeye Firearms Association offered 24 training slots. And almost 1,100 teachers and administrators responded. It remains to be seen what the response to such a program would be in Virginia. But if you ask one of Bob Marshall's colleagues on the other side of the political aisle... I just don't think more guns are the answer. Democratic delegate Patrick Hope represents the 47th district, including part of Arlington County. Principals and teachers, they didn't get into this profession so that they could carry guns. They got into the profession so they could teach. Hope says rather than arming school staffers, Virginia needs to focus on the people who purchase guns. That's why he and State Senator Adam Eben recently visited Chantilly, Virginia and attended a gun show. We wanted to see for ourselves just how easy it was to purchase a handgun or weapon without any criminal background check. In fact, he and Eben would explicitly tell sellers, look, okay, we want to buy a gun, but we really want to avoid a criminal background check. And just how could we do that? And they were eager to tell us. Did these people know who you were? No, they did not know who I was. They probably would not have sold me the gun had they known who I was. Huh. They probably know who I am now. That's because Hope and Eben are proposing to make universal background checks mandatory in Virginia. Right now, Hope says 40 percent of gun sales in the Commonwealth are conducted without a background check. And i got to tell you, no responsible gun owner would be afraid of a background check. Background checks, Hope says, help keep guns away from people who have a history of crime and or serious mental illness. And across the border in Maryland, Democratic State Senator Brian Frush agrees. The way... Most guns find their way into crimes is they're bought by a straw purchaser for somebody who's otherwise disqualified. And in states that have licensing procedures, and by that I mean just something that identifies the purchaser and makes a permanent record of that person's identity, states like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts have lower rates of gun deaths than do places that are similar demographically but don't have licensing provisions. And Maryland, much to Frosch's dismay, is one of those states that doesn't. So Frosch, who represents Montgomery County, is reintroducing a measure he proposed last year. That would allow state police the same authority that the ATF has in regulating gun dealers. ATF, that's the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. You have a few bad actors that cause a lot of the problems. They sell to people who aren't properly licensed or registered, or they lose, and I use the word lose loosely, they lose guns that are in their inventory, and many of them end up being used in crimes. Frosch says in Maryland, the poster child of that very thing was a store called Valley Guns in Baltimore County. And the ATF cited Valley Guns for nine violations of federal law. Not only that, but at one point... They had 400 guns, which was about a quarter of their inventory, missing. They couldn't account for them. If you're a merchant and you're missing a quarter of your inventory, you're not likely to be uh, in business very long unless you're selling them under the counter. The ATF eventually put Valley Guns out of business. But while Brian Frosch emphasizes that he's not trying to shut down all gun dealers or violate anyone's Second Amendment rights... We're not trying to take away anybody's guns. Delegate Mike McDermott, a Republican representing Worcester and Wacomico counties on the eastern shore, believes that's precisely what many of his colleagues want to do. I have a very progressive General Assembly body uh, occupied by a two-to-one majority of fairly liberal Democrats that believe that the government can control these things and somehow by exerting more control, we can stop these things from happening. These things, meaning incidents like those in Colorado, Wisconsin, and Connecticut... 
That's why, similar to Bob Marshall in Virginia, Mike McDermott is introducing legislation that would start up a guardian program in Maryland schools. And there are people that are only known to the administration. They have uh, wear and carry permits, so they're allowed to carry firearms, and the school permits them to carry them on the school grounds. McDermott refers to the Guardian program as an Alamo type of measure. It's basically your last line of defense that a school can offer the students uh, and the staff. Another option McDermott's suggesting is less lethal. In lieu of guns, select personnel would carry electronic control devices. What people would refer to as tasers or stun guns. Which aren't as effective as a firearm, he says. But they can still hit at a range of around 20 to 25 feet. And they will immobilize a target if they make contact. Much like Bob Marshall, Mike McDermott says he's promoting safety by granting people the liberty to fight firepower with firepower. That brings to mind uh, the quotation that you put on your website, the Benjamin Franklin quote. Yes, that that those that are willing to trade uh, uh, a measure of of liberty for a measure of, of safety. Uh, are deserving of neither liberty nor safety. Uh, For the record, the full quote actually reads, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And a lot of people still have that beating in their hearts. They understand what the principles are that govern liberty in a free people. And part of that is the ability to protect yourself and the things that you love. And of course, if past is prologue, this debate over principles and liberty and how best to ensure our fundamental safety is sure to be heated in Annapolis, in Richmond, and of course, right here in the nation's capital, in the halls of Congress. To read more about the legislation you just heard about, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from taking chances in politics to taking chances in science. Neural Stem is a biotech company based in Rockville, Maryland, and it just got FDA approval to implant stem cells into people with spinal cord injuries. As the company embarks on what may be a long scientific journey, Emily Friedman brings us this story on how the cells work. When we talk about the birds and the bees and human conception, most people don't talk about stem cells. But stem cells are there, almost from the beginning. Life begins with one cell, the fertilized egg. Throughout development, cells divide over and over again to produce the billions of cells that make up the body. I found this video online. It's by EuroStemCell, a group of European labs trying to raise awareness about their research. At certain stages, most cells stop making copies of themselves and start to specialize. If you isolate the cells before they start splitting off into bone cells and blood cells and skin cells, those are called embryonic stem cells. They're around just for the first few weeks of human development. After week seven or so, they've multiplied and begin to form the many systems that make up the human body. There is a spinal cord in the brain that starts to emerge. And those cells at that point now can't and won't turn into bone cells or blood cells or skin cells. Richard Garr is the co-founder and CEO of NeuralStem. At this stage, he says the cells in that brain area of the embryo have all the information they need to become neurons. These are called neural stem cells, and they're the building blocks of our central nervous system. They're also the basis of his company's research. Gar explains the nervous system works by sending electrical signals up and down the spinal cord. 
And with degenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis, ALS, and Parkinson's, there's a gap or something that's blocking signals from getting through. The body has ways of healing itself and replacing its tissue. If you cut yourself, your skin repairs itself. When you bleed, you get more blood. Your body makes it. Your bones regenerate bone. The central nervous system doesn't do that. Basically, that's why brain damage, for instance, is so hard to repair. The same goes for spinal cord injury. But when neural stem researchers tried injecting lab rats with these neural stem cells, they found a way around this hard reality. We're actually putting in cells that are going to turn into neurons that are going to actually bridge the gap. I'm walking down a long corridor with Dr. Thomas Hazel. He's the head of research at NeuralStem. One of the most important traits of neural stem cells, Hazel says, is that they can easily replicate. The lab received a donated tissue from a legally aborted fetus about 10 years ago, and they've been using those cells ever since. Uh, the cells are growing stacks of these flasks, and the cells actually physically attach to the, the base of each flask. After the cells multiply and those cells multiply, they're put in vials and frozen using liquid nitrogen. And so each of these boxes has vials of cells in them. There are hundreds of vials lined up in the freezer. I ask if I can touch them. Uh, sure, it's very, very cold. Whoa, that is very, very cold. So, so how many is, cells are in this little vial? So that's probably five or ten million cells there. Back in Richard Gar's office, he brings up a video on his computer. It's from NeuralStem's first clinical trial on ALS patients. The patient's back is, and this is going to be gruesome, the patient's back is cut completely open, exposing the spinal cord. ALS is the slow deterioration of neuron cells. In the video, a surgeon is injecting the neural stem cells directly into the spinal cord, where, if all goes according to plan, they would turn into healthy, brand-new replacement neurons. Phase one of FDA trials is to prove the procedure is safe, and then in phase two, researchers will study whether or not it works. The ALS trial is waiting for approval for phase two, but patients on their own are reporting some improvement. We're putting the real therapy in the real patients, and we're testing everything to see if they're getting better. The trial the FDA recently approved will be exactly the same surgery, but in patients who've experienced spinal cord injury in the past one to two years in the thoracic spine, which is from your chest down. And the question you always ask yourself is, well, would I let my mother have this surgery? Would I let my son have this surgery? And if you can't say yes, then you can't do it. There are no moral victories, Gar says. You can either help the patients or you can't. And after more than a decade of research, he says, they're getting very close to a breakthrough. I'm Emily Berman. NeuralSTEM hasn't announced the hospitals taking part in the study, but if you'd like to learn more about it, you can find links on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story is also about science, specifically the people working behind the scenes, the scientists and engineers who are taking chances and pushing scientific innovation forward. And the reality is that here in the U.S., the majority of those people are men. A 2008 report from the National Science Foundation showed approximately one in 10 people who work in science and engineering 
are managers, and of those managers, fewer than 20% are women. Further, female doctoral science and engineering faculty are less likely than their male colleagues to be married and have children living with them. And the same report showed unmarried women without children received full professorships at a higher rate than married women with children. Kavitha Cardoza recently spoke with two local female scientists who are working to bring more women into the fold. And she joins us now to share their stories. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. So tell us a bit about these two scientists you met. Well, Dr. Marty Jett is the director of the Integrative Systems Biology Program at the U.S. Army Center for Environmental Health Research. So in simple terms, for example, she looks at post-traumatic stress disorder in every organ system to get a complete picture of what happens and how the condition can be treated. Dr. Deborah Urich is the Director of Science Education and Strategic Communications at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. She's studying brain injuries and how we can develop better drugs to treat such injuries. Both of them are particularly concerned about getting girls interested in what are known as STEM classes. That means science, technology, engineering and math. Marty Jett says when she was in school, she was often the only girl in her science classes. Especially in high school, I'm almost all of the science classes. Certainly in physics, I was the only young woman in the class. These two women have started a summer program for about a 1,000 students in the D.C. area. It's called GEMS, Gains in the Education of Math and Science. It gives students who may not have had any exposure to science a little taste of what a scientific career might be like. So students get paid to do research. They even get their own mentors. Okay, so a number of students in GEMS are females, of course, and the hope is that they'll opt for careers in science. But once they launch those careers, um, Kavitha, what kind of pressures might they face, according to Dr. Jed and Dr. Yurik? They were surprisingly candid about some of the subtle pressures they and other female scientists across the U.S. face or have faced in the workplace. For example, I noticed, Rebecca, they have just one or two photos of their families on display, and they said they purposely did that. Jet says she tells other women to make sure to display their awards. I certainly was aware of the fact to put all my patent plaques on the wall, to put all the the certificates and the things like that. You know, that seems to be the thing that the hierarchy is impressed with. And so, yes, that's, that's what goes on the wall. And Yorick took her advice. I asked her to talk about the rows of plaques up on her wall. I'm looking at different awards and recognitions and some mementos, gifts from commanders, that kind of thing. It's, it's representative of your career. You do need to talk about what you've done. Have these women seen any, any overt discrimination against female scientists? Any, any patterns? Well, when Jet started as a researcher, it wasn't uncommon for people to expect that the female scientists would make coffee for the men. But in general, both she and Yurik felt the obstacles to advancement for women are much more understated now. They're not overt barriers ever. The things that I have seen that are wrong out there, when I've worked with other people and seen other circumstances for women, to suspect leadership positions that come along. Those positions might go to the male in the laboratory. I don't know. It's subtle. But Yurik still worries about women in science based on the discrepancies between the number of girls participating in, say, the GEMS program and the number of women who actually end up working in the field. Marty and I, over the years, have had lots of participation by women in our programs, young girls, a lot of times more than 50%. I mean, I know of many programs like ours, but I have yet to really see it reflect itself in the larger scientific workforce. 
So then, Kavitha, where do we go from here? I mean, how do these women think we need to go about getting more females into these fields? Both say they want to pass on their love for science, but they joke and say maybe they're focusing on the wrong age group. Yurik says she was talking to another parent at her daughter's school once. One of them pulled out the announcement that there was going to be a science fair. And she goes, I just told my child that we didn't really want to do this. I think we ought to come up with fun science camps for adults, those parents who aren't promoting what their children should be doing. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) Well, maybe that will be their next project. Maybe. We'll see. Well, Kavitha Cardoza, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we want to know, do you think a glass ceiling still exists for women in science and engineering? If so, what do you think is the key to shattering it? You can email us at metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Up next, talking trash. Literally. We have a robust rat problem in our alley, and the last thing I was going to do was put an active compost pile in the backyard. That and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And on this week's show, we are taking chances. In this next story, we're going to hear how something goes from a potentially chancy thing to a regular part of life. Think about curbside recycling. Okay, decades ago, it was confined to a few green enclaves, places like San Francisco, California. But these days, it's common all across the U.S., And some environmentalists say that someday soon, we could all be separating out our melon rinds and our orange peels for curbside pickup the same way we separate bottles and cans. As Jacob Fenston tells us, two local jurisdictions are taking a chance on the idea that curbside composting could save the environment and save money. A heap of decomposing food in your backyard. Compost piles can be smelly and vermin-infested. We have a robust rat problem in our alley. And the last thing I was going to do was put an active compost pile in the backyard. Jeremy Brasowski lives in Mount Pleasant. He's into food, urban agriculture, sustainability. But composting at home seemed like a problem. So I was looking for a solution for my family. And we couldn't come up with one other than get it off-site. Getting it off-site turned into a business. Soon, he was hauling tons of other people's food scraps across the city. It's called Compost Cab. Customers pay Brasowski $8 a week to pick up their food scraps and deliver them to a local farm to be composted. The reason we do composting is that it is a, it's like a gateway drug for sustainability. And just as when you get into the habit of throwing away a glass jar in the recycling, and you would never think to throw that in the garbage, the same becomes true of banana peels and apple cores. And it is very hard to stop. There seems to be a pent-up demand for this compost pickup service. Over the past two and a half years, Brasowski's gone from having just a few dozen customers in the district to hundreds all around the region. Copycat businesses have popped up locally and around the country. But the business's success could actually hint at its demise. Municipal composting is coming. Brasowski says eventually cities and counties will pick up food scraps just like recycling and trash. But that's okay with him. In fact, he's willing to help out those future competitors. Um, I'm wondering if the pail has to be next to the trash bins. Like, will the town just University Park in Prince George's County was one of the first local communities to try out curbside composting 
with a pilot program launched in 2011. So it's five-gallon bucket with um, a sealable lid, so it means it's airtight. So raccoons, nothing can get into it. Smells don't get out of it. Chuck Wilson, Um, who coordinated the program, is talking to residents who've recently signed up. For the first year, the town partnered with Compost Cab, which picked up the food scraps for 50 families. The results have been amazing. On average, it's eight pounds of food scraps per week per home. So over the course of a year, those 50 houses kept, you know, several tons of food out of the local landfill. Grant funding for the pilot ended. So this month, the town government is taking over, expanding collection to 150 homes, or about one in five residents. So we keep ours right outside the back door with the um, recycling and trash. Catherine Donahoe was part of the pilot program. She says she'd always thought composting would be nice, but... We're a busy family. Both of us are working. We've got kids. We're running around getting people to schools and daycares each day. Um, This is about what I can handle um, and feel like I'm contributing. Composting is good for the environment because when food scraps end up in a landfill, they release methane, a greenhouse gas 20 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of its effect on climate change. Composting could also potentially save money if jurisdictions end up paying less to landfills. Currently, the county tipping fee for the landfill is $59 a ton. We estimate that, uh, well, let me think about that. Mickey Beal is director of public works for University Park. He says the cost savings initially will be nominal, about $2,000. Which equates to about 30 to 35 tons uh, over the course of a year that would be diverted from the landfill. Beal says the biggest challenge to starting curbside pickup was finding somewhere to take the food scraps. So, here we go. One way to deal with that problem is to build your own composting facility. Composting facility in progress. Gemma Evans is the Howard County Recycling Coordinator. She's driving me around the county dump over hills of filled up landfill to what looks like a runway at a small airport. So yeah, let's have a look. In 2011, the county started offering compost collection to 5,000 households. Currently, all that waste, about five tons a week, gets shipped to a commercial composter in Delaware. Evan says when this new facility opens up later this spring, the county could see big savings, possibly allowing the program to expand. I'm hoping that we'll be able to expand countywide, but that's not my decision to make. That's uh, above my head. Lately, there's a lot of local interest in composting, but the East Coast is still behind the curve. San Francisco started picking up curbside compost more than 15 years ago, followed by Seattle, Portland, Boulder, Colorado, Austin, Texas, and dozens of smaller towns. Evan says it's the future, but it also looks a little like the past. You know, 100 years ago, people weren't throwing out as much stuff as they do now, not wasting as much food as, and other stuff that is wasted now. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll come back around. I'm Jacob Fenston. What do you think about this idea of curbside composting? Share your thoughts with us by sending an email to metro at wamu.org. Now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Waterford, Virginia, and the Cameron Station neighborhood of Alexandria, Virginia. My name is Dak Hardwick, and I live in a neighborhood called Cameron Station in Alexandria, Virginia. 
Cameron Station is located on the west end of Alexandria between Quaker Lane and 395 and actually used to be an old army base. And that's how most people are familiar with my neighborhood. The number of homes in, in, in Cameron Station is 1,749 homes with between five and 6,000 people in a 77-acre area. And I like to joke with people that my neighborhood, which is only 77 acres, is actually larger than four Virginia counties in terms of population. Our neighborhood is bordered by the largest open space in the city of Alexandria. We have a very large park. In fact, we're bordered by two very large parks on both ends of the neighborhood that the city takes care of very well, is well used, and just attracts a lot of families and a lot of activity. The, the area around my particular neighborhood is developing. We've seen developers take interest in bringing in new grocery stores, new shopping areas, and that's one of the challenges, just like any other neighborhood in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Where do you balance new development with existing development? This is a great neighborhood, and I'm not going anywhere. My name is Ed Good. I'm 67 years old. I live in the little village of Waterford, which is approximately 47 miles west of Washington, and have lived there since 1993. Waterford consists of about 100 households, approximately 200 to 250 residents, and the village was settled in 1733 by Quakers who came south from Pennsylvania. During the Civil War, the village of Waterford voted not to secede from the Union, and they sided with uh, the Union and against the Confederacy, which was difficult because they were and are in the state of Virginia. In the 1970s, Waterford was declared a National Historic Landmark by the Department of Interior, one of the few towns in America where the entire town sits within a National Historic Landmark. My favorite part about living in Waterford is that when I go home in the evening and head back toward the village, it really is like driving backward in time. We heard from Ed Good in Waterford and Dak Hardwick in Cameron Station. Your neighborhood can be part of Door to Door, too. Just send an email to metro at wanu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. It's time for our final story of our final show of the month, which means it's time for Bookend. Our regular conversation with Washington area writers. In this edition, it's double the fun as Jonathan Wilson talks with Francis and Ginger Park. The sisters co-own the city's oldest independent chocolate shop, Chocolate Chocolate. They also co-write memoirs and children's books that focus on their Korean heritage and good food. Jonathan met the sisters in the lobby outside their shop on Connecticut Avenue. So what came first, the, the chocolate shop or the writing? The writing actually came first. People are surprised to hear that. But um, Ginger's been writing probably since her teen years, and I actually started when I was 10 years old. I, my teacher just said to me, you know, you're done with the reading classes. Why don't you just sit here 
and spend the period writing. And I just ended up writing hundreds and hundreds of pages and reading it to classes. So that's where I started. I actually started writing uh, right after our father passed away. I was only 16, and it was at that time when I realized that I knew nothing about my father and his heritage and actually our Korean roots. And so although our mom has always talked to us about her life before us when she was in North Korea, I never really listened until after my father passed away. And she told us so many rich stories that I just felt compelled to put them on paper. And that's when I really started writing. You know, you are identified as Korean-Americans um, because of how you look and because of what you write about. But obviously, you've been in the area longer than many, many, many people. What does it mean to be from the area for you? When we were growing up in northern Virginia, it was a very different place. You would not be able to find Korean restaurants, Korean friends, Korean anything, no Korean churches. We never met another Korean-American ever in school. The only other ones were our siblings. So it is different for us compared to the new wave, the newer waves of Koreans coming over here. Um, they, they have a lot of friends and they can stay more culturally attached. I think that's one way that we are different is we grew up feeling very American. And like Ginger said, it wasn't really, I mean, of course, subconsciously things were recorded in our heads. We were different. We would go over to Korea every three summers. But in essence, we did feel American. And it wasn't until our father died that, you know, we started asking questions and becoming a lot more interested in where we were from. Talk about the decision to first write a book together. Um, what was that like? Well, it all started with our mom because, well, when we were growing up, she would tell us, I had to run away from home when I was little. And to us, that was just like, okay, you ran away from home. <laughs> we didn't really understand that there was a war, that there were politics, and that really the, the tragedy of it, which was she had to not only leave her homeland forever, but she was also separated from her mother and she never saw her again. And I think that, you know, after 50 years, even though she never saw her mom again, it was almost as if she was still that 16-year-old girl who crossed the border in 1947. There was a part of her that just never left that spot. And it was at that point where we said, you know what, we have to write a children's book about this because we want children to understand in this country the price of freedom and that no one should ever take it for granted. And it was something that we always did our whole lives until we really sat down and talked to our mom about it. You guys obviously seem to get along very, very well, but siblings, you know, fight and argue. Does that happen even in the creative process? I don't think we've ever had a fight um, when we've written. But part of the reason might be that we always, you know, one of us comes up with a concept and then we discuss it and we agree or dis disagree that it's a good idea. If we say, okay, it's a go, the person that comes up with the concept basically drafts out the story. And after that, it just 
exchanges hands. We go back and forth. We have never written a single page together, sitting at a desk, at the laptop. That, that just doesn't happen. When we're together, we are talking about our customers at Chocolate Chocolate. <laughs> we're talking about her son. We're talking about my boyfriend, whatever. Um, it's as if we need to go into our separate worlds to write. And when you hand the page over to the other person, you, you may get it back the next day, you may get it back three weeks later, and it's often all crossed, you know, all marked up, all changed, and that's fine. We still, you know, just look at it and say, okay, I'm going to rework this, and it, we trust each other that way. That was Francis and Ginger Park speaking with Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson. The Park's first book, based on their mother's escape from North Korea, is called My Freedom Trip. Their next project is a collection of recipes called Allergies Away, creative eats and mouthwatering treats for kids allergic to dairy, nuts, and eggs. You can find it in bookstores this spring. And you can hear a clip of Francis and Ginger talking about what they've been reading lately on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Kavitha Cardoza, Jonathan Wilson, and Brian Russo. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rachel Schuster. Lauren Landau, Rachel Schuster, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when our theme will be Letting Go. We'll find out how some kids in D.C. are handling the imminent closure of their school. We'll meet a man on the coast who let go of his heroin addiction. And we'll explore a Howard University project that's all about letting go of racial stereotypes. I honestly think that people will leave Birthday Soup Part 3 with an open mind, with a clear head, and thinking like, dang, I really need to change the way some of my thoughts are. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.